you hear me? Good morning to you. Grab your Bibles. If you're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're in the wrong testament. Go to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be today. I had a, a moment on Friday, Friday morning. I was at home and uh, was working a little bit on today's message and um, the dog needed to be walked so I grabbed a hold of a leash and was about to put the leash onto his uh, collar and I got a phone call from my oldest Leah and she said, Dad, um, have you heard that Forest High School is on lockdown? I've called Meredith and she's not answering. Now, if you know where we live, we live actually as the crow flies. We live about a third of a mile from Forest High School's campus. We could, we're close enough, we can hear the band play on Friday nights and sometimes even hear the, uh, the in-between class bells go off. And uh, so when Leah was telling me this, I'd opened up the front door and that's when I began to hear a police siren in the distance. I, I literally dropped the leash there in the front of our house and just bolted to my car. When I arrived on the scene, um, I, won't, I won't lie to you, I burst out into tears because what I saw were squad cars at each of the entrances of Forest High School. That's when I received another phone call from Leah who said, Dad, I've now heard that there's an active shooter on Forest campus. Now, those of you who've been around long enough, at least four or five years, you know that it was four and a half years ago um, that there was actually an active shooter on Forest campus. And I received a phone call when that happened. That, the, the, that, that happened last time. That, that time it was from Jennifer. I was on a mission trip. I was uh, in Asia, in, in Europe, and got a phone call from her. And she was in tears saying, Darren, there's a shooter on Forest High School's campus, and I cannot get a hold of the kids. What we did not know then, but what we now know is that Leah, our oldest, um, was in the middle of that school shooting because that, that active shooter actually walked out of a restroom behind Leah as she was walking by, and he fired his weapon right behind her. Um, and so you'll forgive me if, uh, to know now that I've burst out into tears because I'm, I'm reliving this again on Friday. Um, and you know, of course, by... God's grace and protection, the Lord protected Leah. She was here on stage this morning singing. But when we were standing, I was standing outside of Forest High School on Friday. By the way, it turned out that um, there was not an active shooter at the school on Friday. Um, but there was a weapon, as I've been told, was found on the campus. Um, uh, but no one was hurt. But I was standing in front of Forest High School weeping. I'm trying to call Meredith, our, our youngest is there. Um, I'm trying to call her, not getting through. And all I could think is, Lord, why is this happening again? That's, that's, that was what was going through my mind. Um, and as I was processing it and quickly found out that, um, that there was not an active shooter on Friday, I was also processing this. How in the world have we gotten to this place in our society? How is it that we've reached this point? This was not the world that I grew up in, but how is it that we've reached this point where our schools, supposed to be safe places, now can be dangerous places? 
How can our children be placed in danger? Because you know the answer to this. Our world was not supposed to be this way. Our world was not supposed to be the world that, that it now is. God created this place not to feel like a danger zone, but he created it to feel more like home. When he created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden, he placed them there under his watch care, under his safety, under his security, and he, he loved them and cared for them and provided for them. He was to be the center of their entire being, their entire lives. And there, the way it was supposed to be was that we were to love him and to worship him. Of course, human sin blew all that up, blew it wide open. When Adam and Eve, the first of us, rebelled against God, we know that sin entered into the world and they were cast out of God's presence. And now, the rest of us now, we are dealing with the consequences of their rebellion, of their sin, which means sometimes man sins against man and and sometimes you have school shootings. I know that's not an acceptable answer. It's not an acceptable answer to me. But that's just a telling of, of reality. But you know, God had a solution. Praise the Lord, He has a solution. And that though this world was afflicted by sin, our willful rebellion and sin against Him, God's plan would be that He would send a Redeemer. And that this Redeemer would save us from our sin, that ultimately we would be redeemed from the consequences of our sin. And so this Redeemer would come, and according to God's plan, this Redeemer would come and come from among His people, and that God would choose a people, and out of this people would emerge this Redeemer. This Redeemer would tell them how to be His, His people. In fact, God told them even before that, knowing that ultimately a Redeemer would come, that God would redeem them, would save them. He would tell them how to live. He would place them in a land that they could call their own. And in that land, He would bless them and protect them. But all they needed to do was to remain faithful to Him, remain faithful to His Word, remain faithful to His commandments. We've been in Deuteronomy chapter 6 over the last month in a series called The Greatest Commandment. And it's really about the words that Moses was sharing with the people of Israel. You know the broader story of the Israelites' journey, how uh, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, had entered into Egypt, at first were blessed, ultimately became enslaved, and God redeemed them out of that, because that was not their home, and redeemed them out of that, saved them out of that, in order to take them in and to bring them into the Promised Land. And so Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, and there they arrived at Mount Sinai where God gave them His Word, uh, the, the, the basis of the covenant agreement that He would have for them. They stared there for about a year. And having come away from that, they began to disobey God and began to rebel against Him in their heart and their attitudes and their whining. And so a generation that was supposed to go into the promised land was not allowed to go to the promised land. It was going to be for a future generation. And now Moses, who, was, who had led them out of Egypt, he has brought them to the edge of the promised land, and now he's speaking primarily to the younger generation who's about to go in. The older generation could not go, the younger generation would, and this younger generation would have an opportunity to remain faithful and to enter in, but they are going to face some challenges along the way. They would be tempted to rebel against God, just like Adam and Eve did, just like their parents did, the previous generation, to be tempted to turn away, and so Moses is reminding them of the covenant reminding them of the expectations that have been placed upon them 
that as they go into the land, if they want to remain faithful to the Lord, they needed to follow what the Lord was telling them to do. And so in in the book of, of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons or messages and instructions that are coming from Moses to this next generation. But here in, in, or there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 was a summary of the law that was given to them on Mount Sinai. And he's, he, he sort of summarized the heart and point of it all there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and boils it, the entirety of it down to what we call the Shema. The Shema, the greatest command. It goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And so the Israelites ultimately entered into the promised land. With God's power, they conquered the inhabitants in that land, and there they established themselves as a nation. They planted their families, they built up communities, they built the temple. Unfortunately, they didn't embody the instruction of the Shema always. They didn't always uphold it. Some did, some didn't. They had seasons of, of obedience, and there were plenty of seasons of disobedience. And when they, when they obeyed, the Lord blessed them. When they disobeyed, it cost them. Sometimes it cost them dearly. And yet the Lord was still for them. And through them, through this people, a Redeemer would come. Well, today we're going to wrap up this series on Deuteronomy 6, not in Deuteronomy 6, but in Mark chapter 12. We're going to jump uh, uh, more than a thousand years ahead in time to the New Testament because from the, the, around the time that Moses was instructing the Israelites before they go into the promised land uh, there in the book of Deuteronomy to the moment we're now going to read about, to the days of Jesus, more than 1,400 years have transpired. Jesus, the Redeemer, is now on the scene. He's teaching and preparing people to receive him as the Messiah, and he's making his way to the cross. But he's also, along the way, being challenged by people that would say, yes, we embrace the one true God, yes, we uphold the Shema, and these that are challenging him are those that doubt him the most. And it's in one of the encounters that Jesus has with his opposition, guess what comes up in their discussion? That's right, the Shema. He's going to be asked about it. Throughout the the 1,400 years that have transpired between Moses and Jesus, God's people handed down the Shema from generation to generation, from father to son, from mother to daughter. And by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, it is still being taught in his day. We've been calling the Shema the the greatest commandment. And it's not because in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that it designates itself as such. It's because Jesus himself viewed it that way, which is what we're going to see in our text this morning. So with all of that context laid out for you, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, down to verse 31. Here's how Mark tells it. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's pray. 
But Lord, you're amazing. We have this incredible book, this word that you've given us, the Bible. And Lord, there are such great and deep truths to be found throughout it. And also, Lord, there's such simplicity at times in it. In this text that we've just read and your summation of what your word is about, this greatest commandment, it is amazing in its simplicity. But Lord, oh, if we could just live out these simple truths the impact that it could have upon those that are around us. We know that this world is broken. We know that this world has fallen because of sin. And Lord, we, we may wake up many a day ruining what is in front of us. But Lord, let us not lose our hope. And let us not find our hope in this world. But let us find our hope in the one who has created this world and has given it a purpose and given us a purpose to worship you and to worship you alone with everything that we have. And that, Lord, as we do that, may it impact how we relate to other people. So speak, I pray, and we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. We know that Jesus had quite a few confrontations in his ministry. And interestingly enough, they were often, uh, they came about, uh, with religious leaders. It was the religious people of his day that often gave him the greatest amount of trouble. They were the ones that primarily rejected Jesus, and they were also the ones that tried to discredit him and discredit his ministry. But think about this. The Savior, the very Son of God, the very revelation of God, the one who had come to give them abundant life, the one who had come to bring men into a right relationship with God, that one was the one that was standing in front of these religious leaders in their very midst. And he would not only provide salvation, but he would also show us what life was intended to be, life with purpose and significance and meaning. And in all that Jesus was getting from these who would say, yeah, that's what we're after as well, all he was getting from them was opposition. And we know that this opposition continues to this day. We have people that are distracted and deluded. They're d deterred from following after Jesus. And as such, they're missing out on what is most important and that there is a God and this God has created them to be known by Him and that they might worship Him. Now don't, again, forget that Jesus' conflict was with religious people. People who were experts in the Scriptures. They were the ones most likely to teach their children the Shema. And though they have told their kids over and over again about how the Lord, your God, the Lord is one and that you're to love Him with all your heart, your mind, uh, your soul, your strength, they had missed the whole point of it all. In fact, look at verse 28 because here's another confrontation. We just read about it. I want to read it again. There's a confrontation, uh, a, a, another confrontation because Jesus had already had several with them back to back to back. Look again there. Another scribe, another religious person comes up. And one of the scribes came and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This question is a really big question for the Pharisees. It's not the first time that they had heard this question posed. They had lots of debates and lots of contention over it. See, the, the law was given, and even though Moses himself sort of summarized the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with the Shema, there were other places throughout the Old Testament Scripture where commandments were given to them. In fact, the law, the, 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 they had codified themselves, the Pharisees had codified the law into a total of 613 precepts. 
And as they cataloged it, there were 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments or prohibitions. And they expected, the Pharisees expected everyone to follow each of these laws. But they offered no hope, no help in following them. And if you messed up, well, there was no mercy, no grace. And all you had were the heavy chains of legalism. And so there are these three, 613 pre, uh, clear precepts, no clear agreement over which one was most important. Some said that the positive commandments were more important. Some said that the negative ones were. And what it ultimately led was people um, trying to weigh out their good deeds versus their bad deeds. And if your good deeds uh, outweighed your bad deeds, then they believed that God would accept you. And even more, if you could keep the most important ones you'd be far better off. And so the question then was, which commandment is the most important of all? If if I'm not going to be able to follow them all, let me identify which ones were most important, and I'll put all of my energy toward that. And honestly, this question is really a, a, a big question for us too. As a believer in Jesus Christ, which command, what command is the most important? And so Jesus responds so clearly among the the many things that we can do as Christians, the most important is this, love God with everything that you've got and pass that love on to other people. That's it, it's as simple as that. So what what does that mean? Look at verse 30, because at the first command, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. So simply put, this means... Love God with your all. If you want to know what is the greatest command for you as a follower of Jesus, what is the greatest command? Love God with your all. And we're not going to unpack all the the particular details of which each of these mean when he says love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength. Uh, Pastor BJ did a great job uh, unpacking some of these things a few weeks ago. However, you may have noticed That when Jesus made this statement in response to the question, what is the greatest command, that Jesus slipped in something new. Did you notice that? The Shema says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, or or, or strength. But Jesus adds with all of your mind. Well, can he do that? Yeah, he can do that. It's his book, right? He is God. He, He is God in the flesh. So yes, he can. But also what Jesus is doing here. Uh, is sort of fleshing out what should have been known to them already, that loving the Lord with your heart, remember the heart is sort of the seat of the emotions, uh, it's, but it's not just about your emotions, that it would also include the mind, your thoughts, how you think. And so a, a plain reading of this verse tells us that we need to love God with our all, with everything we have, lock, stock, and barrel. Love God with your whole self. That means you don't hold anything back from Him. We cannot compartmentalize our lives. We can't say to Him, Lord, I'm going to love you on Sundays, but the rest of the week is mine. We would never say that or think that, but sometimes that's how we behave. No, He wants our, all of our love in every area and all of the time. He wants our all, all of our love. Now, should that surprise us? It, it, it should only make sense because that's what He did for us. He gave to us, and when He gave to us, He gave His all. Remember, the cross was the greatest example and demonstration of love that has ever been given. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows His love. He demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. And so God himself loved us with the deepest kind of love. How? He gave his all for us. And so our response back to him is to love him with our all. So that's the first command. There then is the second command in verse 31. He says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a simple command. Just as the first one is simply love God with your all, the second then is pass God's love on to others. The most important thing that we can ever do is to love God with our all, and the second most important thing that we can do is to love our neighbors, to love others. Now, can I say we're losing this idea in our world? Have you been paying attention as I've been paying attention? It, must, it, it, was sort of a, it seemed to be, as I was raised, being raised, that loving your neighbor was a, a common sense, kind thing to do. But doesn't it seem like everybody's angry all the time these days? I mean, so put out with one another. It, it, it feels like we're, we've entered into a dog-eat-dog kind of world. I, just the other day, I was, I'd pulled up to a stoplight, and uh, as, as the light turned green, I began to make my way forward, and somebody whipped around me, honked at me, and, uh, and you know, gave me a signal. At first, I thought he was saying, you're number one. That's not what he was doing. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what I, honestly, I, to this day, I have no idea what I had done. And the first thought that came to my mind was, how bad must your life be that you live your life so angry that you've got to respond to somebody else that way? Well, that wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. That was the second thing. But. <laughs> Friend, what we need to, to return to is the love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. But listen, we don't do that, and this is not about just making our society a better place. Don't, don't hear me on this. Loving your neighbor is really an overflow. The second command, the second great command, loving your neighbor is, an, is to be an overflow of loving God with your all. That's what it should be. I sincerely believe that the reason why we're seeing so many people, so many neighbors, hating on their neighbors is because they're not loving the Lord as they should. And the reason why they're not loving the Lord as they should is because they don't know Jesus. They've not been saved by Him, they've not been changed by Him, they've not been living for Him, and the reason why they don't know Jesus is because, well, we who do know Jesus aren't telling those who don't know Jesus how to know Jesus. See how this comes back to us? The reason they don't know Jesus is because those who do know Jesus haven't loved our neighbors enough to tell them about Jesus. Listen, I know that's not easy sometimes because we live in days where it's not so cool to be, to, to be a follower of Jesus. And if it's not cool to be a follower of Jesus, it's certainly not cool uh, to talk about him. And it sort of puts us in a, 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 a precarious place, you know, sort of between a rock and a hard place. We've been, as believers in Christ and want to be faithful to his word, we've been called to proclaim the good news of Jesus to everyone. But we're, we're called to do that in a culture that doesn't want us to share our message. And so you could say that the rock for us is to share the gospel. I mean, Jesus himself commanded us, Mark chapter 16, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. We have this commandment. It's not an option. He's told us all to do that. So the Bible clearly teaches us to share our faith with other people. That's a rock-solid biblical truth. But here's the hard place. 
The culture out there doesn't want to hear it. They don't want us sharing our faith. I mean, get this picture in your mind. Doorbell rings. You're not expecting anyone, so you quickly shuffle through the house, glancing at the mirror in the hallway to make sure you're halfway presentable. You crack open the door, and, and you glimpse two young men in white shirts and ties. Uh-oh. You hardly have to, to check the other visual clues because as you do, they confirm your suspicions. Backpacks, name tags, each of them has a book in hand. They're Mormons. They smile at you and you know what's coming before they say a word. They're there to introduce you to the other testament of Jesus' life, the Book of Mormon. And they want to, win, uh, want to win your spiritual allegiance. And I want you to think about how that makes you feel. What are your thoughts about them if you've ever had that encounter? That, that scenario I'll just describe to you was written in a book called Unchristian, a book by David Kinneman, who's the president of, of Barna Research. And basically the book is about uh, the emerging generations and what they think about Christianity. And their research shows that what you may think as a Christian in regards to Mormon missionaries is what lost people in the younger generations think about us and our gospel. That's how they think. We've got the same reputation. They, they don't like to be cornered any more than we do. Listen, you may have noticed this. I've known this to be true. There's been a change in receptivity to the gospel in the last 20 or so years. I've, I've done street evangelism. I, I've been out on Bourbon Street uh, sharing the gospel before and, and have been able to lead people to faith in Christ. I've led numerous door-to-door evangelism teams. We've hosted up-teen uh, t- uh, uh, evangelism events. What I've been noticing over the generations of my ministry is that people, fewer and fewer people are responding as quickly as they used to. Most conversions to the faith seem to come out of young, the youngest generations from children. Even teen, fewer teens are responding as they used to. And uh, Kinneman gives a few reasons why our, why our culture is becoming less receptive to Christianity. He said, in part, it's because of rejection of absolute truth. Also, that some feel that Christians don't genuinely care about them. Uh, the, the culture out there is skeptical about our motives. Um, that sometimes we come across like spiritual headhunters. As one person puts it, Christians only are, are interested in me if I'm open to their message. If not, they want nothing to do with me, as one, one puts it. They don't like the tactics that some Christians use in their witness. They feel like they're being stalked or feel like tr- Christians are trying to trick them into hearing the gospel. As I had a conversation with one young lady uh, not too long ago, actually a few years ago, uh, when I was trying to, attempting to share the gospel with her, she said, I worked with a lot of Christians, but it, it felt like they were pouncing on me, and it was like they never, didn't even take the time to, to, to care to get to know me. And so that's sort of the world in which we now exist. We find ourselves. We're in this rock-between-the-hard-place kind of, of world where we're commanded to bear the, the gospel witness in a world that doesn't want the gospel witness, and it, like you, uh, like me, you may be troubled at this at times, uh, but know this. You want to be right with the Lord. The Lord wants you to be right with Him. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be pleased with Him. And just as you and I want to see our lost family and friends and neighbors and coworkers come to know Christ, the reason why is we know the consequences of going to the end of your life without knowing Jesus, and that's eternal damnation. The Bible's clear about this. Jesus spoke about uh, the consequences of unbelief, far more than he talked about heaven. And so we know this. We know that we have family members, if they remain in the spiritual state that they are, they're going to bust hell wide open when they die. 
but we, we fear being too aggressive, which would turn them off from the gospel. Well, can I tell you that there's a solution to all of this, a way forward, and the solution, the secret, is in the second commandment, love your neighbor. But I want you to look more closely at it, because to pose this question, how do we love our neighbor? Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. The idea is that we're to love our neighbors. That is, we love our family, our coworkers, our friends in the way that we would want to be loved if we were in their position. A verse that captures the spirit of that is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The way I learned that growing up is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's the golden rule. And I really believe that this has profound implications to our gospel witness. Because if we'll start loving our neighbors as we want to be loved, as we would love ourselves, what it's going to allow us to do is to obey the commands that God has given to us to communicate the gospel, but to also see our gospel witness through their eyes. To share the gospel in a way that's effective and and receptive. Because when we love our neighbors as ourselves, we'll see them as more than spiritual trophies to achieve. No one wants to be treated that way. We'll genuinely care about them, uh, not only if they are interested in our Jesus, if we love them as ourselves. Because we want to be genuinely cared for, right? And if we love them as we want, want ourselves to be loved, we'll be patient with them in their spiritual journey because we'd want people to be patient with us, right? And if we love them, uh, love that our neighbors as we would want to be loved ourselves, we'll, we will show over time, not just in the immediate, but over time we'll show that we genuinely are interested in, their, in them because you know, we don't want people to be our friends in the moment and leave. We want our friends to be genuinely interested in us ongoing. And when we love our neighbors as we would want to be loved, then we'll demonstrate that our motives are pure because we don't want someone showing love for us only to find out that they were just trying to take personal gain, advantage over us for their personal gain. What it ultimately means is that if we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that we'll share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them out of love. Out of a love for God, but out of a love for our neighbor. Now, Occasionally throughout the season of the, and, and calendar year of our church, we have opportunities to get out and love our neighbors. How interesting, interesting is it that uh, in just a little over a week, many of you are going to have an opportunity to do that in a way where our neighbors are going to be receptive. You know, Halloween is coming. Uh, if you're like me, when somebody rings, I've got one of those ring doorbells, you know, I can see who's coming at the door. I can decide if I want to open the door or not, you know. Uh, most people in our society today, we, we like to sort of cocoon up and we, we sort of stay behind our doors. And our, our family groups, our friend groups are much smaller than they used to be. People don't know their neighbors like they used to be. But isn't it interesting that Halloween is the one time of the year where people actually come to doors and people willingly open up the doors, right? It's the one time out of the entire year most likely for your neighbors to get out and to circulate among their neighbors. And so we're encouraging uh, our, our church family to get out. You've been hearing about this, you'll hear more about this, but we're having trunk or treat. We used to have it on our property, and I know that was a big deal, and we used to have a lot of people coming out. We didn't always see a lot of fruit from it, in fact, very little fruit. And so after, in the middle of and after COVID, we've really shifted the emphasis of that to really be an opportunity for us 
to love our neighbors as ourselves by having trunk or treat in our neighborhoods. So we got families and, and, and uh, uh, church families that are gathering together in their neighborhoods. We got little signs that we'll post out in front of the uh, ahead of time, and we encourage uh, our, our church members to get out there and to be in the community, love on their neighbors, and prayerfully see this as an opportunity to build relationships and to share about who we are as a congregation, if possible, and, e- and even in some cases sharing the gospel outright. And so we want to love our neighbors with the hope of introducing our neighbors to Jesus so that they will then in turn love God with all of their heart, with all their mind, their soul, their strength. And then maybe they'll start loving their neighbors as well. Now this whole passage is really simple, isn't it? It's so simple really, but it really sums up what a relationship with God should be about. Simply, we need to love God with our all and pass God's love, pass that love on to others. And if you'll do those two things, you know, Jesus tells us it puts you closer to to the Lord. In fact, if you'll jump down to verse 32, I want you to see how the the interaction sort of concluded there. We're not going to camp out there. It says that the scribe who had asked him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? The scribe said to him, after Jesus gave him the Shema, but also said, love your neighbor as yourself. the, The scribe says, you're right teacher you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god and after that no one dared to ask him any more questions I just love this, by the way. There were so many people challenging Jesus, trying to you know, prove him to not be who he was claiming to be. And here's another man who comes along, and you know, they're challenging him. They, they, by the way, they were challenging the God of the universe, right? They're going toe-to-toe, having a battle of the wits with the God who had created everything, who is everywhere and knows everything. And Jesus responds, as only Jesus would, And all the guy could say in the end was, you're right, you're right. I mean, he said more, of course, here. In fact, he was basically agreeing with what Jesus had said and that this is is more than just going through some religious motions. And so he was getting close. He wasn't quite there. That's why Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God. He didn't say you've arrived at it, but he says you're not far from it. In other words, if you want to be closer to the kingdom of God, you've got to love God with all that you have and pass on that love to other people. But what the man needed to understand, what you now need to understand, that the only way to do that, the only way for you to love God with your all is through a relationship with Jesus. It's the only way. Because if you do not yet love God with all that you have, it's because you've not been changed from the inside out. It's impossible for you to love God with all that you have based on who you are before you have a relationship with God. So the Bible tells us that we are broken spiritually because of our sin. That that we are tainted, we are cursed with sin. And because of our sin, we are apart from God, we are separated from God. And there is an ultimate separation, Uh, there is death. The consequences of sin is death. And it's not just death in the physical sense, we are dead spiritually. We are separated from our spiritual father. 
And the only way for you to be able to love God with your all is for you to be brought to life spiritually. And the only way for you to be brought to life spiritually is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, who paid the penalty of your sin, who died for your sin, was buried and came back to life, proving that He was God and that He did what He claimed to do, which was to bring forgiveness for you, to redeem you. He did that for you, and your response therein is to confess Him as Lord and repent of your sins and to turn to Him. And only those who have been entered into a relationship with Jesus have been forgiven by Him, and only them have a relationship with Him, and only they can love God with their all. And so I'm here to tell you, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which the Lord through Moses summarized what it means to be obedient and faithful as they were entering into the promised land. Now Jesus says, look, this is the greatest command, to love God with your all. This is what life is all about. You are to love God with your all. And if you love God with your all, you'll also be able to love others with the love that God has given you and lead them to know the gospel and to respond as well. But in order to love God with your all, can't just follow these rules. You're getting close, but close is never enough. The only thing that matters is a relationship with me. And so I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus, that today be the day that by faith you trust in him. And when you do, he'll enable you to love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Lord, I know even now that someone here may be wondering, Lord, am I loving you with my all? Perhaps that person has been a very religious person. Maybe they joined a church a long time ago, maybe even this church. But something was missing in their spiritual equation. For all their endeavors to love you with their all, and maybe even to love their neighbors as themselves, Lord, they didn't start where they should have started, which is with a relationship with you. And so even now, Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit of God to be working in the hearts and minds and souls of people that are listening at this moment, that, Lord, you would, even now, be drawing those who do not yet know you, convicting them, awakening them to see that before they can ever love you with their all, that they need to be forgiven of their sins. And so, Lord, I pray that you redeem them, that you save them. As they confess you as Savior, as Lord, as they repent of their sins and turn to you, that, Lord, you would then empower them to truly live up this greatest, live out this greatest command that you've com- commanded the saints of old to do, and now you command us to do. But, Lord, also I pray for those of us who have been redeemed, for those who have been saved, For those of us who now have the capacity to love you with our all, that, Lord, we will also not be neglectful and loving our neighbors to the kingdom. And, Lord, I pray for our efforts that are coming up in the next week. But, Lord, not just through our trunk or treat efforts, but, Lord, may we see that every single day is an opportunity for us to love our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our unbelieving family members. The Lord, let us love them as we would want to be loved. Give us wisdom, but also, Lord, encourage us to be faithful in our obedience to love. 
And Lord, we pray for fruit to come. The patience to walk this spiritual journey with others, but praying for spiritual fruit. May many come to know you as your people love you with their all and love their neighbors in a similar manner. This we pray and ask in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.